Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. With special thanks to Headline Publishing, I'll be speaking on this episode to Tom Phillips and John Ellidge, authors of Conspiracy, a history of bollocks theories and how not to fall for them. So here we are at the Grapes, a lovely little pub that makes it feel as though we're on a ship the more this way you look towards the Thames. It's great to be here with authors of the book we're going to be talking about on this episode, Conspiracy, A History of Bollocks Theories and How Not to Fall for Them. John Ellidge to my right and Tom Phillips to my left. John Ellidge, a freelance journalist and author, formerly assistant editor of New Statesman and Tom Phillips, journalist and serial author, former editor of Full Fact, the UK's independent fact-checking organisation and former editorial director and senior writer for BuzzFeed. It's great to have you both here. How are you? Good to be here. I enjoyed the description of Tom as a serial author. It sounds um, quite sinister in just the right way, I think. Uh, And I'm good, yes. And yeah, I am a serial author and I I will author again. (laughs) (laughs) I have it on good authority, Tom, that you once saw something here that, uh, okay, John, it was you who said it, described as conspiratorial. Can you tell us what that was all about? I, it was, it was in fact, Tom's story. I was just reporting it. It was... Yeah, so this was a few years back. I, um, so I, I used to live around here. This was basically my local. And I was just in here of an evening. I just had, a, I, I believe, a nice day out in Leon Sea. And I'd just come back, um, thought I'd have a pint at the grapes, when there was a sort of a kerfuffle there were sort of people in the sort of the upstairs restauranty bit were sort of being turfed out and seemed a bit put out by it. And I was a bit, a bit confused, but I just looked around, okay, fine, whatever, whatever. And then a few minutes later, Stephen Fry walks through the pub and goes upstairs. That's interesting. You don't see that every day. And so I, you know, I thought I'd, I'd do some clever sort of undercover uh, investigative journalism in that I would uh, go to the loo, which is upstairs. I'm terribly sorry. The waves were literally crashing through the door of the pub. That's quite unexpected. Are you seeing the waves splash onto the yeah, side they, here? They did Even better. between the boards of the balcony there. We're about to be assailed by pirates. Sorry, carry on. Well, no, no. So I was doing my, my clever investigative journalism, which involved going to the loo and looking into the, the dining room upstairs. And I clock what's happening. There's three men having a conversation in the otherwise empty room. One of them is very obviously Stephen Fry. The other man has a sort of very dark hair, dark beard. Um, And then there was another man who had his back to me. Just a man, just a very normal, boring man. And so I thought, oh, he's he's having lunch with his agent or something. I don't know. And he, he asked them to clear it out. And they were like, oh, yes, of course, Mr. Fry. Anyway, what I was actually looking at there and didn't realize until The Guardian reported it a week later was a secret meeting between Stephen Fry, Evgeny Lebedev, the oligarch's son, and the boring looking man with his back to me, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, having a secret meeting upstairs in a pub in Limehouse. Did The Guardian explain what was actually going on here in this report, or are we still in the dark about that part? We do, in fact, know what it was. This is the thing about it. This seemed like incredibly conspiratorial stuff, but 
it was actually fairly benign. And this is kind of the point. It, you know, if all I knew about that was that I'd seen the Prime Minister having a secret meeting with a, a, a son of an oligarch and a famous celebrity, I've gone, that is pure conspiracy. That What is going on? Turns out Stephen Fry was simply lobbying the government to take a stronger stance over Russia's uh, LGBT rights record with the upcoming Sochi Winter Olympics. That's all it was. Perfectly fine, perfectly reasonable. Obviously, he has better access to the government than most of us do, but not really actually a conspiracy. And so that was kind of the thing that it was that was at the back of my mind a lot when I was writing this book was just going like it's very easy to see things that look like conspiracy, and you could argue that that is in some ways a bit of a conspiracy, but it's not really. And, of course, it didn't have any effect because the government didn't boycott the Sochi Olympics or do anything like that. So it it added up to nothing. All that happened is that David Cameron got probably quite a nice meal. The slight downside of this for me, because obviously I didn't clock David Cameron, meant that I stared right at a scoop. The reason I was in the pub was because I was in between jobs. I was going to my new job at BuzzFeed like the next week and I had a great scoop to begin my thing with except I missed it completely. I looked at the Prime Minister of the country and didn't recognise him. Kicking yourself afterwards. If it's any consolation I missed the financial crisis. People kept telling me things about um, residential debt multiples that in retrospect suggested the bubble was about to go pop and all I cared about was not being a financial journalist anymore. So I missed the biggest financial collapse of, of the century. To get on to the book, a lot of people reading the title will think to themselves, I know what a conspiracy theory is, I would never fall for a conspiracy theory, and I don't associate with people who either have or do, generally. Why might they be wrong about all of those things? I mean, why might they be wrong about them not being prone to conspiracism, conspiracy thinking? I I think because, to some extent, we all are. The, the, the research on, on who is most prone to falling for conspiracy theories is, is annoyingly vague and hard to pin down. Like there is a general, we have a whole chapter in the book about this, there is a general sense that some people are a bit more prone than others and people who have strong political beliefs tend to be more, more conspiratorial than people who don't. But actually one of the things that seems fairly true is that, you know... The fact, a stat I always come back to is there has never been a point that fewer than 50% of Americans have believed uh, there was a conspiracy to assassinate JFK. There wasn't, so far as we know. There is absolutely nothing in the story of that assassination that requires anyone other than Lee Harvey Oswald. You don't need a conspiracy to explain how that guy died. But at every point since 1963, a, plura- a majority of Americans, up to about 80% at some points, has assumed there is a conspiracy there. So, you know, it is quite easy to demonstrate that large numbers of people do do believe in some. Often it's just a matter of finding the conspiracy that works for you, isn't it? Exactly, and I think that's part of the thing, is that thinking that you're immune is when you're at your most vulnerable. John just mentioned there the JFK assassination. Sometimes the most unlikely people not only subscribe to, but start conspiracy theories. I was very surprised to read about Bertrand Russell in relation to JFK. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, that's a, Bertrand Russell makes the list of smartest people of the 20th century. Like, you know, like, there's no doubting that the man was far, far cleverer than all of us at this table put together. Um, and yet he was one of the main promoters in the UK of the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. And actually, if you read his work on it, you see that he is falling into exactly the same traps that, like, your weird uncle on Facebook is falling into. He's doing it 
better written, but he, you know, it is basically the same sort of thing. Like he sort of takes, he, he says, he, he's picking holes in the official narrative, but the official narrative isn't the official narrative. The official narrative is just like one newspaper reported one thing wrong. Like that's just a mistake, and he kind of keeps doing this, uh, you know, over and over again. And it's really, really interesting to see someone who is unambiguously a genius fall into the exact same traps that everybody else can. Well, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that thing that we often hear about conspiracy theories, which is that actually there's a lot of internal logic to them. The other thing is we also, in the book, look at all the various reasons why people might believe that they start believing in conspiracy theories or find it difficult to get out, including, you know, people often get social groups with these people. It's often a comfort if you're feeling powerless and so on and so on. Um, but one of them is thinking you have access to secret knowledge makes you feel clever. And if you're if you're someone who is self-consciously a public intellectual who thinks himself uh, in some way clever and above the, the, the unwashed masses anyway, that doesn't sound like the sort of person who's going to be less prone to conspiracism to me. That sounds like exactly the sort of uh, scenario in which you're, you're going to fall for stuff. And, and another point that we, we, we come back to again and again in the book is that sometimes there are real conspiracies, sometimes ridiculous things do happen and you know the people who who the, the people who can spot those in advance are, are that's often a sign of great intellect and great insight so so it's kind of flattering to assume you're one of them and i think journalists when they are written into cinema they're often dismissed by their editors as conspiracy theorists for having a story that isn't really a story they're doggedly determined to show that it's legit they go out of their way they get into danger people but make movies about those guys people don't make movies about the 50 times as many reporters who are coming to their editors with stories unless the editor's going that's nonsense go away and that's because it is nonsense and it never goes anywhere and the journalist is an idiot those guys don't get films made about them I mean, there's a conspiratorial tone to... I mean, it's everywhere now. You go onto YouTube, and within three minutes, you've got an ad popping up that says something like, your dentist doesn't want you to know this. I mean, this is now just the stuff of advertising. This isn't even really underground anymore, is it? Not at all, and I'm trying to remember. It's a quote from Adam Weishaupt, who was the founder of the Illuminati, the real Illuminati, not the one that you see on YouTube videos, um, who said, whatever is secret has a special attraction for men. He knew this. He specifically set up a secret society, not because he really loved secret societies. He's, he wanted to get more people to listen to his thoughts on philosophy. Uh, and he thought that a secret society was a good way of doing that because it has this attraction. And there is a really, really, really strong kind of desire to to see behind the curtain you know like we love just like at a really base level as humans as social creatures we love getting to see something we weren't supposed to see we there's a there's a almost voyeuristic impulse which i think kind of goes alongside a lot of this stuff it's like you know as everybody knows like as every newspaper editor knows if you call something secret even if it wasn't really that secret, if you put secret plan to do something like that, people are more interested. It's automatically fascinating. And so, yeah, like, there is, like, beyond, like, specific conspiracy theories, there is just a conspiratorial vibe that kind of does seem to permeate everything because it seems to really link to and trigger some quite basic impulses in our minds. I think the Conservative leadership contest is into its fourth year now, uh, but it is approaching its end. And there was there have been so many columns with this kind of general vibe. I think this one was by Alistair Heath, the, the editor of the Sunday Telegraph, 
basically saying that Labour had a secret plan to overturn Brexit and that, and that backing Liz Truss was the only way of preventing this. I would love it either that there was a secret plan to overturn Brexit or that the Labour Party was interested in doing any such thing. It's obvious that neither of those things are true. But this is the kind of... It, get, it gets the people who are prone to worry about those things twitching. It, it's just a way of activating your base, isn't it? When you quoted Adam Weissart just now, Tom, that whatever is secret has a special appeal for men. Is there a distinction or a dividing line between the way that conspiracy theories tend to attract men more than women? I do have thoughts on that. Let's order some food first. Something I learned at the bar, a very friendly Californian lady who sat in the corner told me that The Grapes is owned by Ian McKellen. You happen to know this already. You kept that under your hat, Tom. Yes, I, I, I did leave some information out of the story earlier. Also, And around us is you know, yes. statues of Gandalf. There's Gandalf's staff behind the bar. It should have been obvious. Either that or they're just really big fans of Lord of the Rings. But no, <laughs> no, because um, so, so, uh, Sir Ian's a local. Uh, he's lived in this area for a very, very long time. And I think it was uh, some years back when the place was, as many pubs were struggling with the prices, uh, he basically got together a small group of people to buy it uh, so that it could just carry on existing exactly as it had been up until that point. Which, by the way, is also why Evgeny Lebedev was there, because he's one of the people who came in to help buy it. So he's also a co-owner, along with a theatre director. Uh, so yes, it is, this is, a, this is, it is owned by Sir Ian McKellen and... Uh, various other people um, it's also I mean it's got an incredibly rich history there's also reason there's a huge amount of Dickens around yes. here is because Gandalf and Dickens which are hard to tell apart in the opening chapter of Our Mutual Friend there is a very lightly disguised grapes uh, is sort of the pub that appears in that and from, from the description it really hasn't changed very much since Dickens drank in here so it's like it's a it's, it's a real, it's a lovely lovely pub to skip back to what we were talking about before we ordered food, Tom. Yeah, there's certainly a trend that you see that men, young men in particular, but also not just young men, um, do have a, a tendency to sometimes be suckered into this sort of stuff. I think one of the interesting things that we've seen recently, particularly with QAnon, is there's a very, very strong component of young women who are involved in that. Young and middle-aged women are very, very into that. A thing that we saw all the way through the pandemic as well was that there was sort of crossover between, and, you know, I don't want to sort of, like, be over-gender-specified uh, on this, but lots of things that are generally sort of coded as being feminine. Uh, things like sort of wellness and nutrition and things like that, sort of uh, alternative medicine, those kind of territories. There was a huge amount of crossover during the pandemic uh, of conspiracy theories. Um, there's also a, a point that the, there's a community building quality to conspiracy theories a lot of the time. I think you also see that in conspiracy theories that sort of start local. So, I mean, obviously, like sort of 5G conspiracy theories really broke through during the pandemic because again people were searching for explanations for a incredible bizarre event but obviously they have a long long history right like you know it's not just 5g it's basically every g up until that has also had it you know back in the early 2000s you know people were setting fire to phone masts people were you know vandalizing them there were protests around the rollout of 3g as well and that has a real community building up because that's literally local it's a reason for neighbour to talk to neighbour. That doesn't spread over the internet. That spreads over the, the garden fence. And so, like, as I said, like, there is definitely um, a general male skew in some of these things, in the, the, sort of the slightly obsessive picking apart of stuff, the sense that sort of like, 
your status is being challenged and so you're looking for a reason why your status is being challenged that really leads to conspiracism but then there are lots of other things as well that are again and you know I don't want to say these are specifically male, specifically female, but like, you know, the, the, to the extent that they are gendered in, in, in some kind of way. There are also lots of things about, you know, fear of harm to children, which has been one of the major drivers. We talk in the, in, in the book about going back to the origins of the blood libel, you know, sort of fear of harm to children is still driving QAnon and, you know, Pizzagate and things like that today there are things that can can attract everybody into conspiracism different people might have different roots but there's normally a way in for almost anybody john do you want to chime in on this so i think a, a couple of things one is i do think the to some extent the whole the whole incel movement is based on on a conspiracy theory it's like the idea that there is actually some kind of conspiracy to mm. stop these these dissatisfied young men from from getting the, the the sexual attention they feel entitled to it's a great example do you happen to cover that in the book i'm still moving no, my way we don't, through we don't it. really get into that one i do think that the, the dynamic is very is very much it comes from a lot of the stuff we've really been talking about that kind of like feeling of inadequacy the search for community the, the search for an explanation of why why the world seems to be biased against you in some way, um, and I think a lot of the, I, I think a reason this has come to the fore in recent years is because you know there's a, there've always been angry young men who are primarily angry because they're not getting their end away. Let's be honest. Um, oh, dinner's here. I think if you look at every terrorist movement that's ever been, there's been like a small group of middle-aged ideologues running an army of, of basically teenage boys who just really, really want a girl to kiss them, or a boy to kiss them, as it may be. Um, so I think that's always been that. I think the internet has just enabled these people to kind of connect and made it much easier to kind of like make this stuff happen at scale. The other thing I was thinking about in relation to gender specifically um, was simply look. I think I don't think there is actually much evidence as to whether men or women are more prone to getting sucked into conspiracy theories. I do feel though that like men are more likely to act upon them. Like the the real the real danger here is that it builds into some form of political violence, and that is definitely more of a male thing than a female one. So I don't necessarily think conspiracism is a male phenomenon, but I think some of the, the negatives that come from it uh, is quite gendered. Does the menu change here often, Tom? The Lamburgers have just arrived. I'm not sure whether you've ordered one of these before or whether this is totally new to you. These are completely new to me. Yeah, no, this menu's changed. I haven't been back here for a couple of years. And so, yeah, this is... The, the, the menu's been... has been refreshed. Should we break for lunch and I'll get another round in? I think that's a good idea, John. Have you ever met a conspiracy theorist? Uh, I interviewed one of the world's leading flat earthers, a guy called Mark Sargent... Um, who, who is an absolutely lovely man and has done a lot of these interviews in which he knows full well that people think he's mad and like oh, this is a very weird dynamic where he kept reassuring me he's like honestly ask whatever you want I'm not going to be offended so that kind of um, but, but he was which was um, an odd experience not because specifically of anything he said but because there were a couple of his arguments I couldn't immediately spot the problem with so I did end up writing literally several thousand words to prove mostly to my own satisfaction that the Earth was a globe. 
which Tom then gently suggested that maybe we could get away with cutting because we probably didn't need to prove the shape of the earth in our book on conspiracy theories. So John questioning his own sanity there. Gaslit by uh, Mr. Sergeant. I, and this has been a huge concern for me all the way through this process, to be perfectly honest. Not John. It's like I'm, I'm very familiar with this. That you just like you start reading and you can't immediately spot the problem with it and then just going like wait a second one of my questions was going to be have you ever been tempted by a conspiracy theory I mean I'm not going to say that based on that anecdote John you were necessarily tempted by flat earth theory but but have you been not not like a not like a proper one I have I did a few years ago uh, end up down a rabbit hole of sorts which is incredibly embarrassing but I've talked about it on other interviews so I might as well mention it here um in which I became obsessed with the rumours that some bloke had been to Africa and found several dozen missing 60s episodes of Doctor Who um, which had in retrospect I can see all the kind of dynamics of conspiracism in that story but writing the book looking back on the period in which I was like brief, like there was a point where I was on a fr- friend's stag do and I was sat in the corner reading forums uh, about missing episodes of Doctor Who it's like this is exactly the same dynamic that I got sucked down into well I was going to say if you're covering conspiracy theory or if you're researching it or indeed writing a book about it you get pulled down there is also a, a psychological profiling test you can do that tells you how prone you are to conspiracy thinking um, and we, we did that one after one Friday afternoon not unlike this one we were just getting to quitting time we're thinking of going to the pub so we did we both did this test turned out that Tom is slightly less prone than, than the average conspiracy f- thinking I am slightly more prone okay are you romantic of temperament I'm an only child can I say that <laughs> does that cover it I, I, I think my childhood involved a lot of like imagining stuff and telling stories about <laughs> myself I probably think that's a big factor here to be honest I was really into not only conspiracy theories, but mm. the unexplained. I was hugely into like all the sort of the Fortean kind of stuff. I was mad on uh, you know all of the things that an eighties childhood would give you. Spontaneous human combustion, loved it. Quicksand, brilliant. Bermuda Triangle, fantastic. Give me more of that. Obviously UFOs. Obviously aliens of all sorts of things. Obviously poltergeists. Um, Atlantis. Yeah, a bit of Atlantis. But no, I was I was always hugely into that sort of stuff. Um, and there is it's because it's it's interesting and fun. Like, and the fact that I'm now at a place where I'm going like right, but it's most of it's not true. Although I still do have some questions about spontaneous human combustion. Um, I don't really. They were smoking cigarettes. And it, yeah, that's all that happened. That's all that happened. So it's the 19th century. Everyone was covered in kerosene and stuff. Yeah, exactly. They? No, they probably... Yeah, exactly. They're probably smothered in, like, whale oil or something. I don't know. Um, It'll be all of us by November this yeah, year. Yeah, no, exactly. No, absolutely. I plan to spontaneously human combust at some point around January. I just invite all my friends around so they can keep warm for a little bit while I'm burning. Um, this has got very bleak and dark, hasn't it, anyway? What is your favourite conspiracy theory? I'm going to let John take this one first so so one of the bits of the the book i found most fun to research was uh the phantom time conspiracy which is this idea that uh nearly but not quite three centuries of european history never happened and that actually um they a coalition of rulers around the late 10th century probably including uh the byzantine emperor the holy roman emperor and probably a pope um fiddled the calendar because they just thought it'd be basically cooler to be living in the year 1000 since since jesus was around than the year 703 
And there are a number of reasons I like this. One is that it's sort of obviously nonsensical because the calendar we use only sort of emerged in about the ninth century. Like, it's, it's completely meaningless to people for most of the first millennium. And obviously, like, the year we have for the, the birth of Jesus of Nazareth is, is wrong anyway. It's out by four or five years. But also, I just love the fact it's so transparent. It's it's a literalization of the, the Dark Ages, where like the, the the reason the Dark Ages are dark is not because of anything literally going on. In, although there was someone on the internet who tried to convince me uh, that there was literally dust in the air, uh, and that's why they were the Dark Ages. But that's 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 by the by. The reason the Dark Ages are called that is because there's a lack of written records, because civilization, you know, urban civilization kind of breaks down in Western Europe. And then in much of Eastern Europe, a bit later, actually, after the plagues of Justinian. Uh, but for various reasons, there's just people have better things to do than write histories or explain what's happening, such as, you know, not dying because suddenly you're subsistence farming and there's a tribe on the hill who are going to kill you. Um, so, so there are very good reasons why we don't know what's happening in those centuries. The phantom time hypothesis kind of literalizes that and says, well, the reason we don't know what's happening is because they never happened. And it's a very sort of Eurocentric view of history. If you're, you know, if you're British or French, the idea that nothing really happens in the, you know, fifth, sixth centuries, uh, that's, that's very appealing. It makes an instinctive kind of sense. But if you're from the Arab world or, or Iranian or Chinese, then there's no gap in the records at all. Um, so it's, I just like how, Euro, how literal it is and how Eurocentric it is. Tom, so I'm going to say that my favourite conspiracy theory is crop circles. If you don't mind me saying, fairly vanilla. Yeah. The point there is what the conspiracy theory is about crop circles, because this is the point that we make in the book, and it's ley lines, not a conspiracy theory. Ball lightning, not a conspiracy theory. Uh, the Earth, in the form of Gaia, uh, trying to communicate with us to tell us about climate change, not a conspiracy theory. Aliens, not a conspiracy theory, unless someone's specifically covering the aliens up. Most of the weird explanations for crop circles aren't conspiracy theories. There is one explanation of crop circles that is a conspiracy theory, which is that it was a bunch of people doing it in secret in the middle of the night with some ropes and a plank, and that it was all a hoax. That is a conspiracy theory in that it's the only one that actually involved people conspiring. And so that's my favourite, because we were going to write about crop circles, and we do write about crop circles loads in the book, and it was only sort of like, just one day, just going like, wait a second... The only conspiracy theory here is that it was a conspiracy of people doing a prank. Which it was, by the way. It was a prank. Like, like the guys behind the prank admitted it. They have been interviewed. They made a crop circle in front of journalists. And then they got one of the world's leading crop circle experts to come out and verify that this was a real crop circle made by aliens or something. And then broke the truth to him. And he recanted everything he'd ever said and went off to live on a farm or something. But it's an, ama- it's an amazing story because it does show so many things. It shows that, you know, there are real conspiracies, but it also shows exactly how people end up getting sucked into these rabbit holes, I think. So what are some rules of thumb to avoid getting tempted? I mean, I think there's one, one thing, about one rule above all others. If you think about the scientific method, it works through fortification. The scientists basically try and disprove their own theories, and if they can't, then it's probably pretty solid. I think... I think that's what you need to do with your own with your own beliefs really if if you if you are strongly drawn to a particular theory don't try and prove it to your own satisfaction try and disprove it and that's the way you can actually test whether or not something is real 
Yeah, and I'd say that there is absolutely that. You know, lots of conspiracy thinking is very much just critical thinking run amok. Lots of it, you know, questioning official narratives, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's good. Yes, question official narratives. You absolutely should do that. The thing is, if you then don't apply that same critical thinking back to the new theory that you've come up with or that you're being told, you see so much of conspiracy theory is picking holes in official narratives. Yes, do that. But then just accepting the alternative narrative without ever questioning it at all. So if you're doing the right things in conspiracy thinking, if you are questioning things, if you are genuinely being sceptical, you've got to do that back to your own beliefs as well. And that's a difficult thing to do. That's a tricky discipline to get into, really, believe me. It was my job for several years, and it's hard. But that's kind of what you've got to do. And I think the other thing is, um, we mention it in the book, Tim Harford, the economist and writer, brilliant guy, um, he has a thing that he always says, which is part of his little toolkit for how to analyse numbers that you see in the news and I think it applies far more broadly his thing is his final and most important piece of advice is how does it make you feel is this something that is causing heightened emotions in you are you angry are you scared something like that it doesn't mean that it's wrong god knows there are plenty of scary and angry things in the world lots of them increasingly as every week goes past, more and more of them. So it's not that those heightened emotions are wrong. It might well be that you have perfectly good reason to be angry or scared or whatever it might be. The trouble is, that's when your guard is down. When you are feeling heightened emotions, you are much less likely to do those things. Work out, can this be falsified? Do the critical thinking back on yourself. You're much less likely to do it. And the solution to this is a nice, simple one. Step back. Just go for a walk. Stop looking at the internet. Stop talking to your, your weird neighbor who's telling you about 5G. Whatever it might be. Just pause. Gather your thoughts. And when you're not feeling that heightened emotion, maybe come back and look at it. Doing that little thing can really make so many of us avoid not just a conspiracist rabbit hole, but lots of other ones around polarization. Take a breath, step away, go for a walk is a good bit of advice. And I would add to that, go to the pub, but we all know that alcohol and conspiracy theories tend to help each other. So I hear a helicopter outside, which must mean that David Cameron has another meeting. Thanks very much, John, Tom, for writing this book and for joining me at The Grapes. Thank you for having Cheers. us. Cheers.